within the sound of silence. In restless dreams, I walked alone. Narrow streets of cobblestone. Neath a halo of a street light. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration i am your host Stephen butra and joining me once again amy thomason amy how are you doing a little somber today thinking about today's movie it is a somber day uh in honor of the 100th anniversary since the cessation of hostilities in during the great war world war one uh that just passed uh Couple days ago, we are looking at back at the 1930 Best Picture winner, All Quiet on the Western Front. The tale of uh, I think the only, really one of the only such things about World War One to ever really hit the hit the masses at the uh, at the time. Uh, I understand that you have read this book. It's based on the novel by Eric Maria Remarque. Yes. A uh, German, I believe. Yes. And, uh, of course, the question is, how does the movie compare to the book, and how is it as an adaptation? It is a fair adaptation of the book. Okay. The book is very more psychological than plot-driven. Yes, they're put in different situations, and the different situations, many of which are in the movie, but just a, it's a lot more about what's going on in the guy's mind rather than plot-driven. Okay, I can. Very powerful, man. Whew. Yeah. I will. I will say this at the end. Why the title of the book is what it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I when this... I found that out, it was like, again, one of those emotional, like, sucker punch in the gut, kind of things. It is one of those novels. I have a vague sense I might have read. In high school, just when you're studying World War One, you're like, all right, we're going to read All Quiet on the Western Front in one of the classes, but I can't remember anything. It, it, it's one of those things that is so ubiquitous in the culture. I'm like, did I? Have I read oh, this? I'm not sure. I, I hadn't. I owned it. I started it a couple years, like years and years, probably 10 years ago. And I just, it didn't grab me right away. And then I knew we were doing the podcast. So I was like, got to listen to it. And my husband was like, you know how I am with you for not having seen Five Easy Pieces? He was like that with me. He was like, you've never read it? Because not only has he read it, he's read it like multiple times and can like bring it to the forefront and have these great discussions about it. He's like, I can't believe you've never read it. Like, I really wish I didn't know this about you. And I was like, sorry. But hey, you fixed it now. But he was right. It yeah. really, now you, now I'm going to be nagging you to read it because it is so good. Oh, my God. Jesus, you know, I really should never have, I should have just ignored your email entirely and found someone else. Another, <gasps> just another, just another white dude who watches horror movies and sci-fi films. That's, that's all I, that's, that would have been nice, but no, it would, it would not have worked. The film. However, you read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and admitted I was completely right and that that was a great book. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, well, I, li I for the record, like I listened. I listened to it on the on during a very long road trip, and that's really where I get my reading done. 
listening oh, on road trips. That's how I listen to this. Half yeah. hour commute back and forth from work every day. I have a 30 second commute. I can't do that. Oh, look at you, you not having to look after it. Anyways, <laughs> the film All Quiet on the Western <laughs> Front was directed by Lewis Milestone, written by Maxwell Anderson and George Abbott and Del Andrews, based upon the novel by Eric Maria Remarque. It stars Lou Ayers, Lewis Wolheim, John Ray, Scott Coke, Owen Davis, William Blakewell, and a host of other chiseled, good-looking young men, many of whom die. Uh, and it is uh, about a young soldier faces profound disillusionment in the soul-destroying horror of World War One. A, a young soldier who, uh, as we know, and is surprising considering uh, what happened, is on the German side, who is, by all accounts, the quote-unquote bad guys in World War One. Although World War One is a mess of alliances and entanglements, but generally considered... Germany were the aggressors for the most part. So it's very odd to see such a powerful and big, epic American production. This is 1930. This is between the wars. Talk about, you know, show you war from the side of the enemy. It's, I can, it's, it's one of those things where I can't imagine them doing this really in World War II, given the craven nature of the uh, of the Nazis, but uh, how do you think the decision to take the book, which is about which is definitely about the the German experience, and translate that as is, and not decide to make it into and this is how, this is how the American boys did it. I'll tell you what, for the year we were in the fight, <laughs> how do you, uh, what do you how do you think that uh, the decision to to do that and how and just the culture at the time it is pretty shocking yeah because it's a little it's what 12 years after the war ended 1930 ish so there are people i mean this is all still fresh in the minds of of americans they're still being traumatized you know ernest hemingway is writing books in the mm -hmm. 1920s about the horrors of world war one but why I think it would have been awful if they had made it the American side and changed the story around is that the beauty of it is that it just shows the universality of war no matter what country you're in. Yeah. And later things come out, it kind of reminds me of a much more modern picture, Born on the Fourth of July, where, you know, the young idealistic uh, – Tom Cruise is at the beginning, oh, I'm going to enlist, and I'm going to be a hero, and he comes back, and he's like, this is all bullshit, and it's totally not worth it, and the deer hunter, where at the beginning, they're all, all the buddies are leaving the next day, and it's something that we've seen so many times, but we hadn't seen it up until that point. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, we folks are not, we do not have the grandest uh, knowledge of Certainly, pre nineteen thirty films, a lot of silent movies back then, many of which have been lost to time. But this does seem, I mean, given uh, its uh, its imp impact over even even all these decades, to really have hit something at the time that spoke of, as you say, the universality of war. And I think that's what makes it such a memorable Best Picture winners. That the Best Picture winners that we really 
No, they stand out as something that touches. This is the, one of the biggies. Yeah, this is one of the. This stands out as. This isn't the like thing Cavalcade, that, you know. This is a biggie. Yeah, this is this is this is a, this is a big one. It's it's it speaks to something that we can all that we all can understand. If not, uh, you know, personally, I've never been to war. God, I hope I've never been to war. But to see that everybody on either side is a bunch of kids. Who don't know why the hell they're here, and ultimately doesn't matter because they're just just want to go home. They just want to they just want to be not fighting, not doing this, as it were. And uh, it did pick up uh, some awards at the third annual show, and we will talk about that right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to introduce to you a gentleman that, while he is a very dear friend of mine is also a very strong competitor for this honor and I'm going to call him out here that you may have a good look at him and then I will have much more to say. Mr. Lemley? I want to present to you Mr. Carl Lemley who is a real pioneer in the art of motion pictures as well as the president of the Universal Film Corporation whose company produced that marvelous production, All Quiet on the Western Front, which the Academy has privileged me to bestow upon Mr. Lemley through their vote, that that's the picture they acclaim as the greatest achievement for the year. I might also add, Mr. Lemley, that many of the great writers and magazines have asked this picture receive the Nobel Peace Prize of the year. And it's with great pleasure that I give you this presentation of the bronze statuette, which is an indication that the Academy, as well as the entire industry, consider that you've produced a real epic and fine achievement. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I wish I knew how to express what is in here, but I just cannot do it. Next to my becoming a grandfather recently, this is probably the proudest moment of my whole life. And I want to take this opportunity to thank you, to thank the, to thank the Academy of Motion Picture Science, Arts and Sciences, and to thank every member. And I also want to take this opportunity of thanking our own organization for having given the world a picture that will be remembered for a long, long time. Thank you again. Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. Thanks very much. All Quiet on the Western Front was the big winner at the third annual Academy Awards on November 5th, 1930, a few scant months after the last Academy Awards, uh, the second one, which, did we talk about that? Anyways, the, it was a little odd back then. They hadn't quite figured it out. This was awarding the best films from July 1929 to August 1930. So they shifted the dates a little bit. It no longer was the calendar year. It was, I think, basically from like one, one awards to, to another, et cetera. So very, it's, they're still they'll st they're still working the kinks out as we will discuss uh, in a little bit. The film won outstanding production 
uh, what they called best picture at the time, having dropped the most artistic and like outstanding production from the first two awards. That's where we get wings. It's also where we got the uh, our short-lived best popular film category from <laughs> earlier this year. Rest in pieces. Just never come back. And it also, uh, Lewis Milestone picked up Best Director as well. And this is the third Academy Awards. There have only been three. Milestone also won the very first Director Award for, uh, for uh, sorry, Directing Award for Comedy uh, at the first annual show for Two Arabian Nights. So he was a big deal already. And we are only three into this. He's got two out <laughs> of three, essentially, which... Is pretty impressive. He would uh, be nominated once more for the front page, uh, I believe, next oh. year. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, fun film. That play was out on Broadway a year ago. Oh, okay, yeah. It's that yeah, seems that, that feels relevant. Nathan Lane. Oh yeah, literally that, a year ago. Yeah, that feels very good. And uh, he would also uh, be nominated for best picture for producing of Mice and Men. And later on, he is he was nominally responsible for remaking the best picture nominee or best picture winner into the best picture nominee mutiny on the bounty although brando might contest a few things about that particular and and one more thing about the front page it later became his girl friday yes it did yes one it of the did. greats one of the biggies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it, it was, and the film was also nominated for writing. It lost to a movie called The Big House. Never heard of it. Never <laughs> heard of it. But since we, uh, we don't get to hang out in the 1930s so much, we get to spoil you with a little bit of Oscar trivia. Huge scandal that year. Best Actress winner Norma Shear was nominated twice for two roles. And guess who she happened to be married to? Irving oh. Thalberg. The, uh, the Irving P. Thalberg. <laughs> yes. He was second in command of MGM and who obviously we called the Lifetime Achievement Award after uh, after after so many years. So uh, and it, it's interesting that you could be nominated for two award two different movies, the same award, and you you still don't take up an extra slot. Like normally, you know, you, you have five actors and they're nominated and you have you if you were in two movies you'd be nominated it'd be, you'd be one and two. This is you get nominated for two, and there are still four other people who you can go up against. So there were multi, a lot of times there were multiple people because they churned out movies like uh, like candy back then. You could get nominated for multiple movies and be as one person in the same category. Lots of fun. Hadn't figured it out yet. Only had the uh, actor and actress uh, awards. Did not have supporting actor until um, until nineteen thirty six. And that comes that comes into play for me for this film in particular, which has a great supporting cast. Oh. And uh, also, um, Norma Shear's brother Douglas won the newly minted sound recording Oscar because we didn't really have a lot of sound then. We're just getting into it, uh, making them the first brother sister duo to win. Uh, surprisingly, surprisingly, All Quiet on the Western Front not nominated for any sound, which is some crap, if you ask me. Utter crap, but. Hey, you know, fun little facts here and there about the Oscars. We like telling you about that. The competition that year. Does anyone, has anyone heard of these movies? Amy, what are they? The Big House, Disraeli. Disraeli about uh, British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Come on. 
You have to at least have heard that name. The Divorcee and the Love Parade. Yes, Love Parade, which picked up six nominations. There were only, I think, four categories or something. (laughs) There were not a lot of categories back then. So for it to pick up six was unheard of at the time. Walked away with... Or walked away with one or two, but six noms is a whole whole lot of things. Um, I looked at other movies that came out in 1930. I think there was a couple of Marx Brothers films that arrived, and uh, the other ones, Abbott and Costello. I think, uh, yeah, Abbott and Costello, Costello film. But to me, it looked to me there were not a lot, there was no. City Lights, for instance, when we when we talked about that, you were like, "Why wasn't City Lights nominated?" And King you know, Kong, or King Kong, you know, with Ray and whatnot. Uh, so I felt it was a very eh year for the movies, but then again, it was almost ninety years ago. So what do I know, really? It's almost been an exciting time to be at the movies. We are. This is the pre. Enforcement. This is we are not enforcing the Hayes Code at the time, so we are able to get away with more stuff, like showing a lot of gore and blood and viscera, as we see in this film, really making the uh, making the impact. The Hayes Code would not be enforced until roughly 1934, even though it was still in effect right now. Just nobody was really paying attention to it because we had bigger economic issues to deal with, like the whole Great Depression thing starting out. There was that. You know, whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, And uh, finally, in uh, 1990, the film was selected and preserved by the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry. Uh, Surprised it took that long. I surprised it took that. But I do feel really surprising. Yeah, this should have really kind of been on there. It is. It is. It's um, Variety. In the review, Variety said that. They should. You should just show this movie until we remove war from the dictionary. It's uh, it's big and powerful, and it has survived for eighty years for a great number of reasons. All of which we will talk about right after this. You know I can't run away. That's why you accuse me. I tell you, I didn't want to kill you. I tried to keep you alive. If you jumped in here again, I wouldn't do it. You see, when you jumped in here, you were my enemy. And I was afraid of you. But you're just a man like me, and I killed you. Forgive me, comrade. Say that for me. Say you forgive me. Oh, no, you're dead. You're better off than I am. You're through. They can't do any more to you now. Oh, God, why did they do this to us? We only wanted to live, you and I. Why should they send us out to fight each other? If we threw away these rifles and these uniforms, you could be my brother, just like Cat and Albert. You'll have to forgive me, comrade. I'll do all I can. I'll write to your parents. I'll write you. 
make you your wife. I'll write to her. I promise she'll not want for anything. And I'll help her, and your parents too. Only forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm going to spoil my thoughts on this so there's no doubt about it. This is a great movie. Not, not just, it's great. It's capital G great, and it's also capital, yeah. capital I important. And a lot of the times, those things don't always go together. You have important movies that aren't really great, and you have great movies that aren't important. But this is, this is a great, great movie that deserves to be seen. Everyone should see this movie. If you are a fan of war movies, you should see this movie because it has influenced so very many of the war movies that have come after it. Uh, and it's, I think, still one of the best examples of the genre itself. It really is. Yeah. It really is. It's, um, the fi- okay. let's get to the particulars. The film begins with the teacher sort of proselytizing, uh, giving a propaganda speech to uh, our eventual main characters, Paul and, uh, and, and all of them, in class. And it got me thinking, Amy, what would you, what would you propagandize to your students if you were in that situation? And my, how have things changed? <laughs> Are you even allowed to sell the war in school these days? Um, we're not supposed to. Um, and I, and my husband dealt with this more because he taught high school and he taught U.S. history and government. And he taught during election years. So he was much more, I teach drama, the kids don't really ask me so much. But both of us saw it as our duty as not to indoctrinate children with our personal beliefs that he would always counter whatever point they made. Okay, regardless of the point that was being um, made. Yeah, like during the um, Trump-Hillary Clinton election, he had them watch the debates. And they had to put down three good points that Trump made and three good points that Clinton made Mm -hmm. just to get them to think about other sides. And not once did he tell them who he voted for. There was another teacher at his school and they were told not to show the um, inauguration or anything like that. And then there were teachers who were like, screw that. And they're very openly push their own political agenda on their students, which I think is incredibly inappropriate. Even if I agreed with them, which I don't. Right. How does it? How did? How did? How did that? How did that opening scene with the with, with the teacher uh, hit you as a as a molder of minds? Well, it it's it's a tragedy, really. That you know, the man was talking about. He's obviously he was an elderly professor, so when he's thinking war, he's thinking you know swords and cannonballs. Right. And, and also, was, he's not and, the one going. He's, nobody's asking he's him. He's not the one going. So it's very easy to rally people up. But, you know, South Carolina, the majority of the militaries that people join up, a lot of it's from the South. Yeah. And I have former students that have joined up, and their parents are all excited. And I have friends uh, that I knew in college who come from, like, military families. So it's not something I'm overly familiar with. But um, 
it kind of reminds me of post 9-11 when everybody was getting all pumped up and stuff and you're like are you really sure you know exactly why you're going over there yeah and what and sometimes people don't really no, know. No, no, I don't think. Or they think they know, and they were fed wrong information from their government. But that's all I'm going to say. No, I, I, I and, and that's and that, that's a major theme of it is that the the people selling the war yep. do not. They you need to you need to you need to sell war because unless we're being invaded by aliens, there you have to do this because all right. So in World War One, some do some. Uh, terrorist, some anar- anarchist group Ferdinand. kills an archduke, Franz Ferdinand, and that brings everyone else into this web of, of of war. And suddenly, you know, like yesterday, there was no talk of war, and today there's a there's a war going on. Like, how? Do, why do we? Why do we, the young men of this country, have to go and do this? And so, you know, it's all and. The uh, I like I admit that when I was watching the beginning, I was like, I can see why these kids would be so enthralled by their professor, but uh, because it's a it's a it's a movie it's a movie that's sort of bookended and it's a journey when Paul returns at the end and reads and just like says, you know what, man, war is stupid and you don't do it, and if you call so what if you call me a coward, I've been there, you haven't, don't go. It is uh, some of the most. It's just brilliant. You just because that's who you like. That's who you want to hear from. You don't want to hear from the old dude, from you know, professing about the the glories of war. You need to know the realities of war. And if and if nothing else, all quiet on the Western Front shows exactly what the war was about. It's mean. It's dirty. It's boring as hell. You just sit. You, there's this one scene where they're just sitting around in a bunker under constant shell fire, and they're just going. They're oh going God. insane. The sound of just the the bombs <laughs> just hitting. Uh, it it drives you. And, it drives you mad. It drives you crazy. It's and I appreciated that it showed that. I feel like nowadays we tend to go back to. Especially World War Two, our country has such gets so aroused by World War Two for yeah. some reason, and so you see these movies and and you see the bravery and you see the horrors, but you very rarely see the fear that they have. And I feel like this movie really showed that. Even when I watched The Hurt Locker and um, you know Jeremy Renner's like I'm a badass and I'm gonna you know detonate all the bombs and you know i'm not gonna follow the rules because i like do my thing and this is what i do and i feel like that character is not relatable today i would be the one who would be getting terrified you know and i feel like it just gives such a false impression that it's like we're not allowed to show people actually being afraid in war we can show them die we can show the horrors but we can't show the actual soldiers being like this really sucks, yeah. and I really want to go home yeah. because this is bullshit. I've not ever seen that in pretty much any other movie that I've well, seen. It was, it was, it was. There was a little bit of that in the Thin Red Line as well, but that was obviously a much more, a yeah. much different sort of esoteric take on 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 yeah. warfare. But this, but consider, but also considering the the time period we're in, we are we are in the, the interwar period. World War One ended. World War Two has yet to begin. 
America. The U.S. just finished a whole decade of prosperity. Yeah, prosperity. The, the, the depression started, but you know, we need. We still, we still have the sense that we were in this war. We weren't really in that. Well, we were in the war for like a year or so, like right towards the tail end, because that's how that's how we do. We we basically come in at the end and declare victory, and we're like that's not quite how it worked. But uh, it. It just, uh, it just feels like something we needed, but we didn't know we needed at the time. And uh, obviously, World War II was a very different beast. It was, you know, we moved past trench warfare at at, at that point. But just, just to, we needed to know that, regardless of the, uh, the particulars of the war, whether it's cavalry, whether it's tank, whether there are airplanes, whether there are like nuclear bombs involved, there are. St- it's still at its heart it's about the people who are there and they don't entirely know why if they ever figure out they 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 know because war you know soldiers usually get paid well and sometimes they get food and you know chicks dig scars and whatnot and that's really what it comes down and the guy fantasizing about that in his classroom he's coming down the street in the car whatever and all the men marching behind him and he's got a woman on each arm my favorite scene in the movie i think is paul is retreating from uh one of the assaults over the top and he gets stuck in a in a crater in a, in a, a pit and he is attacked by a french soldier who i, be, I believe mm-hmm. is french so, and actually a, a famous silent actor who didn't have to say anything though which is is kind of is kind of his send off yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they tussle and Paul stabs him and there's still all sorts of mayhem and gunfire happening and so Paul is forced to stay spend the night with this man who is dying and dies and Paul is just stuck there with this dead man and he has to talk to uh, he has to talk to him and there's uh, he um what does he say? What does he say? He says, you were my enemy and I was afraid of you. And we only wanted to live, you and I. And I, 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 th- I think that hit me so much because there's something about, uh, I, I do love a good enemy mind where the two guys or two people on opposite sides are supposed mm-hmm. to, are meant to, they come together and they have to come to an understanding because that's what's mm-hmm. missing in a lot of in a lot of war and war movies, it's missing in every war. It's, it's missing. It's also missing, kind of in really in life too. Just this under this understanding that we we just want to, you know, go fishing and like just not bother anybody or get bothered and by anybody. So, and like I said, with all these big splashy Hollywood World War Two movies, you don't get that. Yeah. And. It, it is one of the most powerful scenes in the book. It's one of the ones that, when I started reading the book, my husband was like, did you get up to the scene with the French soldier yet? Like, did you get there? Did you get there? But just that, again, that universality of, like, you're just this guy, you know? And that's what makes a classic a classic. I mean, there's a scene in War and Peace, which is the longest book ever, and I can't reread it again to find the scene, but where the guy is fighting, and this is, like, against, you know, this is in Russia in the 1800s, and he's fighting, and he's like, people are trying to kill me. Like, don't they know? Like, I'm me. I'm Nicholas. Like, I have a mother at home who misses me. You know what I mean? Like, we're all just, we're somebody's kids, and we're friends, and 
but this person doesn't care about that because they're just trying to kill me. And it's very few times that that's actually brought out. And, and I was glad that they put that in the movie and that they had him, like, I'm sorry. And he wants to, like, write the letter to the guy's mother. Yeah, and yeah because so, just, so much of the enemy is just that. We see we see the other the enemy soldiers as just na- nameless, faceless uh, antagonists who are, because you yeah, because yeah, because you, you, yeah that's li- that's literally how they train you and I and I understand that I I get that but when you are confronted not with not with killing the enemy but with killing another human being who was yes trying to kill you and having to just live with that uh, Lou Ayers does not get enough credit for the wa- for all. the weight that he has to carry because he's not he's not because because Paul uh, Paul is he's not just he's not just Paul he is I, he is the experience of every soldier and Milestone and his 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 writers they and based off of Remark's book they 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 capture that. In a way that so few other things can, because you know, Paul goes. Paul goes through everything. He goes from wide-eyed youth to, you know, like new cadet to grizzled, like cynical veteran who like can only exist on the battlefield. Uh, and, and, and Lou Ayres, who was not nominated for anything, uh, absurd, abs- absurd, is fantastic. There are times. He's fantastic for like pre, um, uh, what's we call it? Pre uh, fancy, like pre method acting, acting. So like you know they're still working out the sound thing, and he's got this boyish look. He's got a, got a high higher register, and he, like you can tell he's like I'm trying to sell this line, but the lines he has to sell are amazing, and he sells them very well. And uh, he never, it's never too cheesy as to be like. Oh, Luke, just knock it off a little bit. Oh, he's just on. And he's got that wide-eyed. Yeah, but he get, but he you know, Like he just seems like. Yeah, he seems like guy. a nice guy, but he, but also later on in the movie, he is gruff and he is beaten down and he's just so tired of all of this and he wants to go home, but he can't go home because when he went home, all of his, you know, his father and all of his. his buddies were just talking about how Germany is going to win this war because you know so and so because because they're because they they aren't there and uh yep and it's oh in that scene with his mother oh god you can't go you can't go home again if uh I mean I think and she's just crying and I got you some warm underwear and it'll keep you warm and she's just and she doesn't want him to go yeah doesn't because she gets it more than the other ones do. This is my son. Yeah, this is a this is a, this is a human being we are talking about here. But um, Lou Lou Ayers would become a conscientious objector in World War II, specifically because of his time uh, spent making this movie, and that actually got him like kind of like blacklisted a little bit. A lot of theaters would, would not show his movie, but uh, you know what? Good for you, Mr. Ayers. You, your work is amazing in this, in this movie. And seriously, why didn't you get nominated? You should have been nominated for Best Actor on this. You, you carry this film. You, you do. But uh, somebody who got lots of acclaim but 
could not get nominated because he's technically a supporting role because he did not have supporting actors nom- uh, nominations oh, at the time was oh. Louis Wolheim, a uh, famous actor of his day as uh, as uh, Kat, as Kat Kaczynski. What do you, uh, how do you, what do you make of this character? He's the one I want to be in the foxhole with. Yes, yes, exactly. Because he knows what's going on, man. He's the guy who can get stuff done. He knows, and he's been through the ringer and back. And so he has, he sadly has to be the one to teach these young, fresh-faced kids the realities of war. Like when that guy goes over the line to get his friend Oh, ben, yeah. Oh, Jesus, Ben. He's blinded, and he runs out, and he brings him back. And he's like, you should have left them there. Yeah, you, got, you brought, you, you brought back you a corpse. Risked your life. You brought back a corpse. You risked your life to bring this corpse back. Oh, but then there's the other line, the friend who's like, but it's not a corpse. It's Ben. It's, it's Ben. Oh. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Uh, and you get both sides of it. You're watching, and Party's like, "Dude, but you're still alive. Like, you have to take care of yourself." Yeah, it's. But I, I, I always I like the gruff sergeant character in the movies, like you know the you know the Tom Sizemore's who they aren't they aren't the ones in charge, I mean, they aren't the ones who are the, coming up with the strategy, making the plans, but they're the ones mm-hmm. who get the shit done. They're the ones who find the food. Like, Kat's, Kat's introduction when he, you know, he steals the, the I think it's the pig off the back of the mm-hmm. truck in a very clever fashion. Like, I, that tells me everything I need to know about this character. He's, uh, he's a man who's mm-hmm. gonna make it happen. He's gonna, he's gonna get through this. Uh, and I, I, I really respect that. And Kat, Kat is so great because he, he starts off with a little, he's like rolling his eyes like, oh, we got the, the fresh face recruits none of them are going to make it etc cetera, etc cetera. but he's not so off-putting and not so jaded as to not want to help these kids uh, get through it because he, he understands that these like i was once this i i a lot of people have gone through this stuff and somebody needs to teach them and it may as well be me mm-hmm. so i can teach them right and how it's supposed to work uh, and he's and mulheim is is just great which makes which makes his ending so heartbreaking oh. because he has been through this since day one. He probably, I, I think he may have signed up, he may have fought in other wars at this, before this one. And he's, yeah, he's a career yeah, he, guy. Oh, he's, he's, definitely, he's definitely a career, a career, a career a grunt there. And uh, it's at the end and Paul and he, and Paul and Kat meet on this bombed out husk of a field. And and they're they're just talking because whatever it's war and and who cares, and Cat gets injured by a stray bomb. I, was it from their own guy? I forget. Was it from their own uh, own plane? I, I don't. I, I don't remember. It was kind of it was a little. I couldn't quite tell if they were what they were going for there, and then he gets he gets hit again by some shrapnel, and there's no speech. There's no grand death scene. He's just quiet he's just being carried by paul 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 is now carrying this corpse of a friend who used to be called cat and he brings him to the medical tent and deposits him and says like i need a doctor and they go you need a morgue he's dead he's like no but he can't be dead he's cat can't waste it we can't waste we can't waste a bet on him oh yeah it's so it's just the 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 callousness you need to have to fight a war is harsh 
and and, and it it, sh- it shines it shines through here. But underneath all of that callousness, there is still there are still people, and there's still Paul. There's still all of his friends who one by one get maimed or killed or any number of things, and it's oh, it's so tragic. And what most impressed me about the movie, and many things impressed me about the movie, was <laughs> uh, this is 1930. We've had, we just the year before, year and a half before, we had the jazz summer, which started the, the talkies, as it were. So we are, this is the infancy, the literal infancy. We are, they're just learning how to crawl and kind of walking uh, with sound. And my God, this is, I watched this film and I thought, this, is this, was this movie shot in 1930? This movie is modern in its technique. And I think, that, and I understand that is because so many films have aped this technique, have aped the sound. Uh, Spielberg mm-hmm. has said that the main influence of Saving Private Ryan was all quiet on the Western front. And certainly in the uh, Normandy sequence in uh, Saving Private Ryan, you can feel the first assaults over the over the hill, over the top, here mm-hmm. in all in in all quiet because they use they mix the sound, they mix the, mix the explosions. It's it's the it's the only music you ever hear in the movie because there is no there is no other yeah. music. It's just boom, boom at, at, uh, at random, almost rhythmic intervals, and you see the you see the men mm-hmm. charging. They charge right. They they take the they take the enemy bunker. And then the the enemy counterattacks, and they have to retreat back where they were, and nothing. Everybody ends up back where they started, essentially. And it it's the use of montage, the use of cuts. And considering they had to go in and cut every single piece of film, like like it actually like it. it it has an energy that is unlike any stodgy nineteen thirty production. Because you know when you think of older movies, you think of no, it's like. It's like a lot of talking. It's a lot of long takes, and I get why they had to do that. But here, they it it just hums and sings. They put the time they, in. They 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 smash into it's at the beginning the uh, when everyone's getting pumped up to go to go enlist. It's the quick cuts to each of their faces, yep. just smiling and They're and, all bright and, and crazy. Their hands. Uh, it it's so impressive that the film holds up so well. Over for ninety years, there are movies made nowadays that are not as well done as this movie was no. in nineteen thirty. Because yeah. you had to be perfect back then. Because you, film was expensive and whatnot. Uh, what did you? What do you think of the decision to not use any music whatsoever? Um, I think it was very effective. Okay. It's brave for a director to make that decision, especially back then. Especially back then especially back then. And like you said, there's no death monologues or anything like that. So it made it raw. It made it scary. And, you know, when they're in that bunker and that bombing's going off and that guy starts to go crazy, you a thousand percent understand why. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, it, it gives it the feel of a documentary. I think yes. like, Milestone and his crew, they just went to a war zone and 
and filmed and filmed what was happening. And they were just like, we don't need to add sound to this because the story should be effective enough. We don't need to enhance the emotion you are feeling right now. This is what it's supposed to be. And yeah, it's not emotionally manipulative at all. Even a, even when um, Paul goes back to the school at the end and gives his speech about like, don't join the war. It's awful. There's no slow build of music underneath it. You know what I yeah. mean? And so it seems a lot more honest than just emotionally manipulative. It's, it's honest and and confident in the story that uh, they are telling because you know you use music to enhance, but also you can use it. It can more often used to cover up or to manipulate the audience into feeling what you're supposed to, yeah like like braveheart definitely like braveheart <laughs> Ama- which is an amazing score but which is a great movie which and it's a it's a very well made movie i'm not dumping on it because you know hell i cried at the end i'm not embarrassed oh, yeah, but it, no, I, but... I, I, do, I do too and i but i but i i understand i'm being manipulated when i'm watching all quiet on the western front i understand that i am i am i am in that bunker I'm in that trench. I'm going over the top. I am in the I am in the hospital scene, where um where Paul is uh where Paul is, you know, recovering from from an injury, from just a just random injury. And that's not the that's not that's my least favorite scene in the movie, but it's still better. Really? Yeah, I it just felt so. I guess, a lot of the film, a lot of the the film that you can see right now, some of it was lost due to time and just the way film uh, is preserved throughout the, uh, throughout the decades. It's, I, I just feel mm-hmm. like I'm missing something from that scene. I'm missing Paul in recovery in the, uh, in the dying room. I want to know what's going on with um, Hamaker, that, that other guy. It just, that, that scene felt so... Oh, when they take him out and he's like, no, don't take yeah, him Yeah, like, that was harsh and it was, it was beautiful. I, there's, that, this is the, that was the one time I thought... No, we need we need more time. We need either more time with this or less time with this. But right, as it is right now, it's a little. It feels a little off. It's still very good. I think. Uh, I think airs. This is the least effective of his work. Like when he's coming back, saying, "Yeah, I made it. See, they were, I'm not going to die here." I I wanted to know like how how he made it out. Like what was the what was the truth of the dying room? Was it the dying room or was it just like this is where they have to chop off all the legs and people get infected and die? Like I. I didn't. Uh, I so I wasn't. I wasn't so. I wasn't. So, which is not knocking. Which is not knocking the rest of the film. It's just a little part that I didn't feel was so uh, so well done as the rest of the film in its current in, incarnation. Had I seen it back in 1930, perhaps it would have been a much different version. But things have uh, been permanently lost to time, and that is a shame because the rest of the movie is so very good and so uh, timeless in its. In itself, uh, did you ever um, feel like you couldn't, you didn't know who was dying and who was talking? Did you have the uh, the soldier guy syndrome that we so often fall prey to? Yeah, and and really though, I I don't think I can blame the movie. I don't know if it's me when I watch military movies. When I saw Saving Private Ryan, I left not knowing anybody's name. Oh, really? At all. I knew Private Ryan because his name was in the title, but like, did they have names? I don't know because I really just it 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 sometimes for me just seems like stock characters. There's the funny guy, there's the brave hero guy, there's 
the guy who's scared. The guy who we know is going to die. Like it's The guy who's really, really sweet and wonderful and has a girl back home who just loves him who's going to yeah. die. You know what I mean? Like, there's the leader dude who's going to make all the inspirational speeches who's going to die. I found, I, I found myself... Certainly, certainly, when there were a lot of them before they were killed off, to be a little like I don't, know, I don't entirely know who's talking right now. I don't, I don't, I don't get what's what's going on. But that is also by design, I think, because they're you know meant to be soldiers. They're not really meant to be people, yeah. and that's it. And also, I I know the characters from Saving Private Ryan because I know all the actors. Like I know that Giovanni. This is yeah. G, this is Barry Pepper. This is uh, you know Giovanni Ribisi, et cetera, whoever. I'd like, I'd like, I know that. I know Vin Diesel's in that movie. Amazing, great. But this, what? yeah, Vin Diesel's in the movie. So is, so is Nathan Fillion. So many folks are in there. Oh, it's, it's it's madness. But uh, I realized that I would probably know these guys better if I were alive in the 1930s because these are like actors who yeah. might have seen in other movies at the time. Certainly, went to the went to the pictures on a week on a weekly basis. Well, it, that- and that I think sometimes when you have people that look similar, I remember um, I know someone who when they first first watched Gone with the Wind, didn't know, you know, hadn't watched all the documentaries and read the book and stuff, got a little bit confused every now and then between Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland. Oh. A little bit at first because he said they just looked so much alike. Vivian, Vivian Lee is so beautiful. <laughs> oh, she's she's my favorite. She's my yeah. but it can it, it and so is Olivia to happen it, it can it can happen it can happen what did you make of the the boots it is it's so sad I'm such a I'm such a girl I'm such a typical girl when it comes to stuff like the shoes this. when they're carrying them around and then they're like we should probably wear them if we run out or give them to someone yeah it's. Uh, I, I think it's. It's a trope that is also um, used in Saving Private Ryan as well. Uh, it's like a cursed item, where in Saving Private Ryan it was a letter that Vin Diesel uh, was writing to his mother or brother, and you know everybody else was carrying it, but they all they all they all died. Here it's it's uh, it's a very nice pair of boots that uh, one of their friends who dies, or rather who loses who has his leg cut off. And therefore, does not need to a uh, pair of boots. Oh God! And when he says he could still feel his foot. Oh. oh my gosh, that was so sad. Yeah. This, this, all the, this, all, the, all those little things. And it, and it, and it became this, uh, this like cursed boot, uh, of the, of the second company of, of which this movie was, uh, was about. And uh, was that was that was that part in the book? I'm actually, I'm actually very curious about that. I don't think so. I really don't remember the the key mark moments from the book were the scene where they go swimming with the French girls. Lovely. And really the scene with the French guy. And when they beat up uh, Himmelstoss at the beginning for being an asshole. Those are the parts that really stood out to me. Kind of, I kind of, I, I, I did actually feel a little bad when Himmelstoss died. Like, immediately in the charge. I was like, oh! Okay, wow, that's... Sorry, Himmelstoss? Seemed like you actually wanted to do good, but you were a jerk about it, so... Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah they, those were the those were the main. The French things. the French girl scene was great because uh, war movies very testosterone heavy, and I think it's it uh, the, having the the French girls there often gave the movie the film the chance to 
breathe in a little differently. Uh, and it it reminds you that you know they're not just these killing machines; they're human yeah, beings. The, and that was, and it was, it was. Yeah, the human so. beings, and not just human beings. They're seventeen, eighteen, nineteen-year-old boys. When they're looking at the when they're looking at the poster, that scene's also oh, in the book. That, that was a, that was of a great the beautiful scene. girl, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, she's beautiful. How old do you think she is?" No, she's not twenty-two because we're eighteen. She's seventeen. But, uh, like, oh. They ripped the guy's picture out. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff, and the way that the way they frame that is 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 brilliant. But the just a reminder that it's not all blood. That life isn't just blood and guts and killing and losing limbs. It's softness and it's intimacy and and loveliness and the, and the way Paul, you know, says. I think he says like basically that I that I love you, but I'm never gonna see you again to the, the French girl and who can't understand her him and they can't understand each other. But that does, that's not the point. It's the point is they you can find a connection that's different than one that you find at the end of a end of a gun or mm-hmm. a sword. Uh, and it's 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 very lovely. And also also you can get a few laughs out of it because there is there is that uh, language barrier that prevents them from. Uh, from really communicating and the, and the way they have to they have to get their they have to distract their their one friend by you know getting them blind drunk so the three of them can just go get the <laughs> the three girls because like there's there's one too many like we we have too many people here there are only three of them and three we need three of us it's uh, yeah uh, have you seen or heard of the sequel called The Road Back? No. Oh, it is a. Uh, I don't understand why there would be a sequel. It's because it's Hollywood. And you need you need to do that. Uh, the remaining members of the second company they return uh, they return home. I don't think it's ever because I think for the most part I think they're, they're, <laughs> maybe whatever. But it, you know it follows maybe it follows those those new guys those new guys. Uh, it was ostensibly directed by the great great nineteen uh, thirty filmmaker James Whale, oh. who directed Frankenstein, as we know. Uh, but it was uh, due to uh, growing Nazi uh, terror was wildly reshot and recut, and uh, also added in some ill, badly timed comedy. And uh, it, James Whale was a interesting yeah, and guy. James Whale. Uh, if you see the movie Gods and Monsters, uh, you should see the movie. Please you see, do. you should. It's great. He 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 goes to town on uh, having to film the road back and what the and what the studio did to him after that. But uh, if you do want to see more of Second Company and know what happens to the Germans, you can check out that film. It was made in 1936, uh, 1937. Uh, it's more of a coming home kind of goofy little thing. The film was also remade in 1979 with Ernest Borgnine, uh, which I have not have not caught, but I I just can't imagine it working as well. It sounds like it would probably just end up being some sort of commentary on Vietnam, which I'm all for commentaries on Vietnam. I just like this. This is one of this is one of those movies where it's yeah World War One Big War, All Quiet on the Western Front is one of those movies that is so good and. It feels so modern that I don't see the need to really remake it, but you know, you get down with your bad self, and that's that is fine. The end of the movie. The end of the movie. Yes, let's come Uh, to the end of the movie. I 
it, this was not a movie that left me crying. This was a movie that left me nothing. It was, uh, well, tell us what happens at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, everybody. It's coming up. Spoiler alert. He dies. Yes. He, Paul dies. Paul dies reaching for a butterfly. It was actually Lewis Miles. Which, hand, but. did you notice when he went home, he had the wall of butterflies in his bedroom? Yes, I did. Uh, the, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be a thing or I th- not. I, I, think, I, think it, I think it was a thing. Was is this how he died in the book, or was it? Uh, was... Um, you he it ends with him thinking stuff, but then it cuts, and then it goes to an epilogue and audience at home spoiler alert. But this is book was printed in nineteen twenty eight, so read the book. Um, the reason it's called All Quiet on, on the Western Front isn't just because it's about Germany and stuff. It is because that is allegedly what was written in the logbook. The day that Paul falls, it says he fell on a day that was so quiet and it said all quiet on the Western Front and that he was found dead and he was smiling as if he was happy the end had finally come. It kills me. I get chills every every time I say it. And it's ingrained. I'm not reading that from a book, folks. Oh, I'm quoting that off the top of my no, head. That's very nice. In the movie, it's um, slightly different. Paul is stationed back at the front of the line and he yep. sees a butterfly, which reference to a, a thing that he and his sister used to do. They, they used to collect butterflies. And he reaches for it, but in doing so, he exposes himself to an enemy sniper and is, and is shot. And the last thing... And you just see his yeah, hand? You, oh, God, that's shot so it's a, it's a beautiful. That is not, that's not uh, Lou Ayers' hand. That's actually Lewis Milestone's hand. Because Lou Ayers has gone home. This was a, this was a last-minute thing they, uh, they added. They're like, wait, we should end it like this. And uh, it's a beautiful... It's a beautiful and haunting image, and that one that just knocks the wind out of you. You go, <gasps> because it just it feels like heroes shouldn't die. Like Paul shouldn't die. Paul needs to, Paul needs to live. But where else is where? And there's no dramatic monologue or music. You just see the hand. You see the butterfly, and you see the and hand. It, just and the shot, and the, it reels back, and and then the end. And then and then and then and then it cuts. And then it cuts oh, to the brilliant, uh, the the brilliant superimposed image of. We see our, we see the second company marching off to marching off to war, and they're all looking back, and it's overlaid over the uh, the sea of crosses from all the dead. And which recalls the opening scene when they're dropped off. Yes, yeah. And you see the truck, and they're all marching, and you see from behind, and one by one, they're all turning around to look back to be like, "Oh, I guess we're yeah, here now." This is, we're in it. And then you see that, and then to end that way. But by the time you get to the end, it's like you know all yeah, of you them. know all of them, and they're all and, and, their and, and they're all they're all on the ground now. They're all under the under, under those crosses, and it's uh, I'd like I think that that Im- the, those last those last couple of images make this uh, one of the most powerful movies uh, ever yeah, made ever ever made, and. I think those the image of them looking back over the crosses. I think like you just need to show that on rerun. Like like every like every like every time you talk about like some stupid war that we're gonna get into, or you're like Af- Afghanistan, you're something like all right. Now we're gonna show you the last ten seconds of all quiet on the Western Front. Just the you just need to you need to see that. You need to you need mm-hmm. to do that. And it's um uh, very powerful. Uh, I'm sort of asking by uh, default now. Did All Quiet on the Western Front deserve to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards? Yes, and to quote my co-host Stephen Duja, it is a great capital G film, yeah. capital F. It is a, uh, and it's, it's a, a biggie. biggie, and it's a, it's great, and it is important, and it holds up. 
people, if you are disillusioned, and you probably have every, every right to be with, uh, I don't know, the state of uh, war films, or just war in general, just you should, you should watch this movie. It is, uh, at times it's very funny. At times it's very sweet. It's harrowing. It's um, unsettling in a way so few films are. Even our even our recent run of horror movies have not been as unsettling as this because this is real. This is this is the an experience that many people went through, and it leaves you thinking, and it leaves you wondering why did we go through this, and why do we have to continue to to go through this? Um, uh, this is uh, it's one of the greatest films of all time. It's a definite contender for my top 100 list, and probably in the top 50 at the very least. And uh, yeah, yeah, again, I'm just I'm bad at making that list. I'm just throwing off a bunch of movies that I think should be on there. But uh, yeah, it's when we look back at the end of this show, at the end of this whole podcast, we have done all of the movies. Uh, I think we will look back fondly at but a handful, and this will be one of those films that truly, absolutely. 100% deserve the title Best Picture. Okay. And you have been listening to the Oscar Watch Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to our special Veterans Day uh, commemoration, as it were, on All Quiet on the Western Front. If you like what you hear, please write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com or find us on social media at oscarwatchpod. Last chance to get your picks in for December. Listener request is still happening. We still want to hear from you. Write us a short essay on a Best Picture winner, nominee, or film you think should have been nominated for Best Picture. We'll read it on air, and if we like it, we will talk about that movie, because your argument must persuade us. Indeed, and we, uh, (laughs) we look forward to that. Next week, we return to the gritty, depressing films of the 1970s with Peter Bogdanovich's, for your reconsideration, The Last Picture Show. Uh, a film I know Amy is very, very oh. excited to discuss. God, I love it. Yeah, so and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having that conversation with you. It should be, uh, I don't know about a grand time, it should be a very, maybe an important time, shall we say. And uh, once again, Folks, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet.